Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. As you know, we did not release a new episode this week, but I wanted to re-upload two stories ahead of Afterthoughts. We will discuss both of these cases. Like I said on the previous Reloaded episodes, this is part of my effort to make sure that these stories are not missed or forgotten. The first episode this week is the story of Tamara Green, who was murdered in Detroit, Michigan in April 2003. The people who murdered Tamara have not been found. There were many rumors about what may have happened to Tamara, but 20 years later, her case remains unsolved. When a black woman or a woman of color goes missing or is murdered, we know that the police and the media don't pay much attention to those cases. But if those women live what's perceived as high-risk lifestyles, then the likelihood that the mainstream media or the police will take the case seriously becomes even more slim. And so the murder of a black stripper from Detroit who had three children and dated a drug dealer, was low on the priority list. The fact is that Tamara's death only gained the attention that it did in Detroit because of her alleged connection to disgraced former mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick. There isn't a lot of information about Tamara's early years or any details about her parents or what her upbringing was like. But we do know that Tamara was a native of Detroit, She grew up on the east side of the city, and she went to Martin Luther King High School, where she graduated in 1994. When Tamara was 17 years old, she gave birth to her first child, a boy, and she named him Jonathan. When Tamara was 19 years old, she gave birth to her second child, this time a girl, and she named her Ashley. On the podcast Crime Town, they interviewed the father of Tamara's daughter, And he said that when he met Tamara, she wanted to be a nurse. She was in school, taking her prereqs for nursing school, and working part-time to earn money to support her and her children. But the couple broke up not too long after their daughter was born. And so by the time Tamara is 20 years old, she has two young children to take care of. And although the origins of Tamara's decision to become a stripper are unknown, Being a young, single mother may have had a lot to do with her decision. And according to her daughter's father, she soon started to realize that her body and her looks could help her make even more money. 
Now, for some women, you know, stripping is a means to an end, a fast way, you know, to make a lot of money. And perhaps for Tamara, that was her reason too. Tamara began stripping at a local club in Detroit, and she started going by the stage name Strawberry. Tamara was beautiful, and she definitely had the body to match. Tamara soon became well-known in the world of exotic dancing, and she became popular among some of Detroit's elite, especially politicians. She not only danced at clubs, she would also dance at private parties, too. In an article done by Detroit News about Tamara, they interviewed a man who identified himself as Tamara's attorney and confidant. And he said that God gave her that body and that she knew what to do with it. And if it was a high roller party, she was definitely the girl to be there. At 26, Tamara gave birth to her third child, a girl that she named India. But it's not clear who her daughter's father was or what their relationship was like. Now, according to people who were close to Tamara, she liked bad boys, and she had dated a few drug dealers in her time. But no one really knows what Tamara was into. People knew she was a stripper, and she had dated some local drug dealers, but other than that, no one was really sure. The rumors are, however, that Tamara was allegedly helping people commit check fraud and use several aliases. She had relationships with what the media called drug kingpins, who she would allow to drive her car so they wouldn't get pulled over by the police. But like her death, Tamara's life also holds a lot of mystery. In 2003, the city of Detroit was a city that saw itself in a steady decline. But in 2001, a new mayor had given the city some hope. In 2002, Kwame Kilpatrick was elected as the youngest mayor to win that office at just 31 years old. Kwame Kilpatrick, a Detroit native, was a young Black man who seemingly cared about his community and Detroit as a whole. But despite serving two terms as mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick's time as mayor was littered with controversy from almost the beginning. There were allegations that he used city funds to finance a Lincoln Navigator, and he used a city-issued credit card to charge massages, dinners at expensive restaurants, and expensive wines. Kwame Kilpatrick, by many accounts, was loving too much excitement and thought that he was the king of Detroit instead of just the mayor and an elected official, a public servant. In the fall of 2002, however, rumors began to swirl about a wild party at the mayor's residence. The alleged party involved a number of strippers and some of Detroit's top politicians and businessmen. But no one who was alleged to have attended the party ever acknowledged that the party took place. And with no corroborating evidence, the story eventually became somewhat of an urban legend. So what does this have to do with Tamara? Well, Tamara was alleged to have been one of the dancers that attended the party that night. And according to the rumors surrounding this party, Tamara was allegedly giving the mayor Kwame Kilpatrick a lap dance when his wife Carlita walked in and saw Tamara on top of him. Carlita then allegedly attacked Tamara and had to be pulled off by the mayor's security guards that were there. That alleged party and the attack by the mayor's wife would be connected to Tamara's murder for years. But was it true? In April 2003, two weeks before Tamara was killed, she was dancing at another party. Now, this party was a far cry from the mansion party with the mayor and the politicians. 
This party took place at a residence inn and was attended by local drug dealers. At the time, Tamara was dating a man named Eric Mitchell, who was also a local drug dealer in Detroit. He would apparently attend parties with Tamara and hang out with her at the clubs that she worked at. Now, the night of the residence inn party, Tamara was attacked again, but this time by a man who she had gotten into an argument with. The man allegedly punched Tamara in the face twice, blacking both of her eyes, before Eric Mitchell stepped in to help. According to the articles about this, the two men then began fighting and Eric got the upper hand. Now, the attack this time had left Tamara with two black eyes, but if she didn't dance, she didn't make any money. And so less than a week later, she was back to dancing and she wore sunglasses to cover up her bruises. That same week, however, the BMW that Tamara drove was shot up while it was parked on a street in Detroit. But at that time, there was no one in the car, and it was being driven by her boyfriend, Eric Mitchell. Now, if you don't understand the lifestyle that Tamara was living, it might be hard for you to understand why she didn't just lay low. I mean, she had gotten in you know, a fight, she had two black eyes, and her car was just shot up, and that happened all within two weeks. But... In order to live the life Tamara lived and see the things that she saw, you gotta gotta be built for tough. That life is not for those that scare easily. And Tamara's primary focus was getting to the bag. Nothing was going to stop her from doing that. On April 30th, 2003, Tamara finished dancing at the club she worked at on Detroit's 8 Mile. Eric was there that night. And so when the club closed, the couple left the club around 3.40 a.m. and drove back to Eric's home. According to Eric, he and Tamara stayed outside in the car talking for a little while, when suddenly a white SUV pulled up alongside the couple. Eric said that a light-skinned man holding a gun reached out the window and opened fire on them. Eric, who saw the shooter pointing the gun, was able to duck down, but Tamara never saw it coming. Tamara had been shot three times. Now, Eric was able to run from the car. He was shot too, five times, according to the police. But he was able to flee the vehicle and call a friend for help. When Tamara was shot, the car was still in drive. And so it drifted forward a little bit before coming to a stop. And Tamara was pronounced dead at the scene. The initial reports about Tamara's death was that she was just an unattended casualty and that the shooter was probably targeting Eric Mitchell, who was, at the time, a well-known drug dealer in Detroit. By many accounts, though, the investigation into the murder of Tamara Green was pretty much non-existent. The way the case was handled would only add to the suspicions about who Tamara's killers really were. A few weeks after Tamara was murdered, her case ended up on the desk of Lieutenant Alvin Bowman, who worked in the homicide unit. He recalls in that interview with Crime Town that one of the sergeants came to him and told him verbally that the victim, Tamara Green, had possible ties to the party at the mansion. Lieutenant Bowman said that he asked for the police file, and when he reviewed it, he claimed both evidence and reports were missing from the file and that the file was being kept in a place that was accessible to many people. 
And so Lieutenant Bowman's suspicions would be the first time that questions about Tamara's death would come to the light. Up until Lieutenant Bowman reviewed the file, most people thought that Tamara was just an undetended target of a beef with her boyfriend. So the fact that there was evidence and reports missing from the file sent up red flags for Lieutenant Bowman. But that wasn't the only thing. Lieutenant Bowman had noticed the type of bullet that killed Tamara was a 40 caliber bullet, the same type of ammunition used by Detroit police and the Glocks that they carry. Now, Bowman said that it was unusual for a murder to be caused by that type of round. Bowman said that most people in Detroit carried 9mm Smith & Wessons, Colts, or Rugers. He claimed that most of the Glocks in the city were being carried by the police. The kinds of gun used was not the only thing that raised suspicions for Lieutenant Bowman. He also was concerned about the number of shell casings that were on the scene. Now, the initial reports were that 12 shell casings were discovered at the scene, but he had information from cops that were on the scene that there were more than 12 shell casings at the scene. Now, Bowman believes it was closer to 18 and that the amount of bullets is proof that someone wanted Tamara dead. Now, Lieutenant Bowman started to tell his fellow cops his suspicions about what happened to Tamara and that he believed that cops were involved. But not too long after Lieutenant Bowman started voicing his concerns about the case, he was transferred from homicide and put on night duty at one of the precincts. According to Lieutenant Bowman, he was told that he was asking too many questions about the Tamara case. Now, Lieutenant Bowman would continue to speak out against the investigation, or lack thereof, and insisted that Tamara's murder was at the hands of Detroit police. Lieutenant Bowman, however, was not the only officer who thought that something fishy was going on. Several other officers over the years have come forward claiming that they were silenced when looking into Tamara Green's case. And several of them, including Lieutenant Bowman, filed lawsuits against the city of Detroit for violating whistleblower laws and retaliating against them in connection with their investigation of both the Mansion Party and Tamara's murder. Many of the officers who were involved with Tamara's case say that they were told to basically leave it alone. But it wasn't just the cops who were allegedly threatened. An EMT who said he treated a woman at a gas station who gave him the name Tammy Green and told him that she was at a party and that she was attacked by the mayor's wife was also threatened. The EMT claims that he was told not to repeat the story. So according to all of these witnesses, they were threatened by high-ranking officials who didn't want the mansion party or Tamara's murder investigated. But why? Well, many people suspected that Kwame Kilpatrick, in an attempt to hide yet another scandal so early in his tenure as mayor, had Tamara killed so she would stay silent, not only about the party, but also about the attack by his wife. So in the years after Tamara's murder, the rumors about her murder and the mansion party faded from the headlines. Kwame Kilpatrick continued to be mayor despite the ever-growing controversy surrounding him. He was also re-elected in 2005 to a second term. Now, the investigators who were handling Tamara's case 
quietly concluded that the death was a result of a drug dispute. But Tamara's family did not believe the police. And in 2005, they sued Kwame Kilpatrick and other city officials for sabotaging the investigation into Tamara's murder. In 2007, a whistleblower lawsuit was filed by two former officers who said that they were retaliated against for their attempts to investigate misconduct by Kwame Kilpatrick's bodyguards in relation to that alleged mansion party. During that trial, it was also alleged that Kwame Kilpatrick was having an affair with a staff member. But when he was asked about the relationship under oath, he denied it. The denial was a lie. And when text messages revealed that Kwame Kilpatrick was indeed having an affair, he was charged with perjury. In 2008, Kwame Kilpatrick pled guilty to perjury and resigned as the mayor of Detroit. He was sentenced to four months in jail, but released on parole after 99 days. The city lost the whistleblower suit, and the two cops received a $9 million settlement from the city of Detroit. In May 2010, Kwame Kilpatrick was arrested again for violating his probation, and this time was sentenced to eight months to five years in prison. Eventually, Kwame Kilpatrick was charged and convicted of mail fraud, wire fraud, and racketeering. He was sentenced to 28 years in prison, and that's where he was until he was given a pardon by Donald Trump at the end of his presidency. In 2011, after years of being held up in the courts, a judge dismissed the lawsuit filed by Tamara's family. The judge said that there was no evidence to support that the defendant, Kwame Kilpatrick, through his actions, had obstructed the investigation. The family appealed the decision, but in 2013, a higher court upheld the ruling of the lower court. Tamara's family continued to fight for justice and answers. Despite the rulings by the court and their position that there was no obstruction of justice, Tamara's family still believed that both Kwame Kilpatrick and the city of Detroit knew more than they were saying. Now, the police had apparently named a suspect during the 2011 trial, but had made no arrest, which is strange, since they said they knew who it was. And one of the reasons that the lawsuit was filed was because the city had failed to actively investigate Tamara's murder. So why not make the arrest if they had a name? Like the family attorney questioned, if they have the suspect, then why are they not making the arrest? The murder of Tamara Green remains unsolved. It was never a priority to the Detroit Police Department to solve her murder. To them, Tamara was just a stripper who dated drug dealers. They probably believed that it was her fault because of the life that she led and the company that she kept. But her life mattered. I don't know if she was the victim of some elaborate murder-for-hire plot or if she was simply a victim of a drive-by shooting. But I don't think that the police did enough either way. And the reality is, is that if there was evidence to support the police involvement, it's been destroyed. Tamara was a mother of three children when she was murdered. They had to grow up without their mom. They had to grow up with the rumors surrounding her death, too. 
It's been 18 years since Tamara Green was shot to death. Her family is still seeking justice. And whether she was a stripper or a nun, she deserved to live. And her killer deserves to be brought to justice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The second story this week is the story of Nadja Farrell, who was murdered in 2019, but her body has never been found. Nadja went missing after not showing up for work, and two months later, her foot was found in a pond. Four years later, her case has gone cold, but someone out there has answers about what happened to Nadja the days that she went missing. I recently got a chance to meet with an organization called Uncovered. Uncovered, for those who don't know, is using community in order to help collect information that can be used to bring awareness to the over 200,000 cold cases that exist in America. But not just awareness, also the ability to collect information that could possibly help solve these cases. The idea is that we, you know, people like you and me, people who listen to true crime podcasts or are obsessed with true crime documentaries, we can help to actually solve these cases. They're creating a database where you and possibly law enforcement can find information about a cold case all in one place. And so during our meeting, they told me about one of the cases that they had featured, and that was the case of Nadja Farrell. I was not familiar with Nadja's case, but I was immediately interested in covering her story. As a mother, the stories that involve mothers strike me the most, especially when, you know, the woman disappears or, you know, when her murder is unsolved. And so Nadja Farrell grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. She was the oldest of four siblings. And growing up, Nadja's childhood was happy. Described as both outgoing and independent, Nadja was a light in her family's life. As Nadja got older, that happiness she had in childhood carried into her adulthood, and everyone loved to be around Nadja. Now, if you're a listener of this show, then you know that I always like to talk about who these women were before their identities changed to victim. It's really important for me to humanize these women. And so initially, when I started to research Nadja's story, I couldn't find a lot of background information about Nadja. But recently, her story was featured on the Discovery Plus show, Still a Mystery. And it was really helpful in finding out just a little bit more about who Nadja really was. So Nadja, you know, she had a really big heart. She had two children of her own, but she also fostered three children. Her family said that she always wanted a big family, and she had a passion for helping children. And so being a foster mom gave her the chance to do what she always really wanted. In 2015, Nadja moved to Avon, Indiana, which is a suburb of Indianapolis. 
Now, according to her family, she really wanted to give her children, you know, a better life out in the suburbs. She knew how difficult it could be for foster children. And so she really wanted them to feel safe and comfortable while they were with her. Now, raising five children is a lot for any mom, but Nadja had the help of her fiancé. The couple had been together for about 10 years when they moved to Avon, but they had just recently got engaged around, you know, the time that they moved. And so for the next few years, the couple adjusts to, you know, their lives in the suburbs. But Nadja and her fiancé's relationship starts to change, and Nadja eventually decides to call off the engagement. According to Nadja's family, she started to become unhappy with the way the relationship was going, and she decided that she did not want to get married anymore. But instead of her fiancé moving out, the couple decided to keep living together, despite the fact that they had ended their romantic relationship. And as odd as that sounds, you know, a lot of couples end up in that situation. I mean, Nadja wasn't working at the time the couple had moved to Avon. And so that may have contributed to their decision to stay living together. But in early 2019, Nadja made the decision that she wanted to go back to work. And so she applied and was hired at the local Panera. And according to Nadja's family, you know, she was really looking forward to going back to work. The job hours allowed Nadja to be off in time to pick up her kids from school, and so it was really perfect for her. On March 15th, 2019, it was Nadja's third day of work at Panera, and she was still in training, and her shift started at 5 a.m. So Nadja got up early that morning, and she got ready for work, and she told her ex that, you know, she needed him to get the kids ready for school because she had to leave early for her shift. Now, according to her ex, Nadja left the home that morning and went to work. Now, Nadja's two biological children took the school bus home, but Nadja would normally pick up the three foster children after school. And so no one in Nadja's family knew that anything was wrong that day. I mean, everyone assumed that Nadja was at work like she was supposed to be. But when it was time to pick up her three foster children, Nadja didn't show up to pick them up. The school that the children attended called their social worker to report that Nadja had not been there to pick them up and that they were unable to get in touch with her. The social worker tried to call Nadja also, but she was also unable to reach her. And so they decided to call Nadja's mother, Paula, to let her know that Nadja hadn't come to pick up the kids. And so when Paula gets the call from the social worker, she knows that something was immediately wrong. I mean, it's not like Nadja to not pick up her children on time. And the fact that no one was able to reach her, you know, that was not like Nadja at all. So when Nadja didn't pick up her children, her family assumed that something must have happened to her while she was at work. And so Paula called the Panera to see if Nadja was there and to see if anything had happened to her. But when Paula calls the restaurant, they tell her that Nadja never showed up for her shift that day. And that's when Nadja's family knew that something had happened to her. When they contacted Nadja's ex, he told them that, you know, Nadja left that morning and that he hadn't spoken to her since. And that he had also assumed that she was at work that day. So when the entire day went by and no one had seen or spoken to her 
since she left for work that morning, Nadja's cousin decided to call the police to file a missing persons report. The police immediately took the report, but Nadja worked in Indianapolis where her mother lived. And when police first received the report, they thought that Nadja had disappeared after going to work in Indianapolis. So once they learned that Nadja had never made it to work, they transferred the case to the Avon Police Department. However, Nadja disappeared on a Friday, and the call to the police was placed late Friday night. And so the Avon police didn't get the report until Monday, which caused them to lose almost two days in the investigation. So on Monday, March 18, 2019, Avon police started their investigation into where Nadja could be. They searched the area around Nadja's home and job, looking for her car or her, but there was no sign of Nadja. The police also started speaking to the people that were closest to Nadja, but no one had any information about where she could be. Nadja did not normally just leave, so they had no idea where she could have possibly gone or why. Police also spoke to neighbors of Nadja's, you know, to see if they had seen or heard anything, but they came up empty. Nobody had saw or heard anything. Nadja was nowhere to be found, and no one had spoken to her. Investigators also spoke to Nadja's ex, who they say was cooperative. And so the lack of information caused police to suspect that foul play was involved really early on in this investigation. From all accounts, Nadja was a loving mother who would not just leave her children. She had also just started a new job, and so there was no way that she would miss her third day of work. And so police suspected that something bad might have happened to Nadja. Two weeks after Nadja vanished, police got a break in the case, but... This is one of those breaks that created more questions than answers. On March 26, 2019, at around 1.30 a.m., a police officer found Nadja's Nissan Altima parked in the parking lot of a movie theater that was about two and a half miles from where Nadja was supposed to be for work. So the police held a press conference with Nadja's family two days later, on March 28th. And they wanted to update the public about the investigation, especially in light of finding Nadja's car in that parking lot. And during that press conference, the police wouldn't say if anything was found in the vehicle. They would only say that the car had been sealed and impounded for evidence. But during that press conference, the police revealed that several personal items of Nadja's were found around a construction site on a local highway. Police said that an Indianapolis police officer was providing security to a construction crew when one of the workers gave him the items that he had just found. The police, however, would not say what those items were. In the weeks after Nadja disappeared, police said that they had obtained over 30 search warrants, including one for Nadja's home, which was searched by the Indiana State Police but there was no indication that they found anything suspicious in Nadja's house. They also had spoke to over 40 people, including family, friends, and of course those neighbors, but 
none of the information they received led to Naja's whereabouts. Eventually, the FBI joined in on the investigation so that they could provide more resources to the Avon PD. Finding Naja's car in that parking lot provided the police with another area to search. And so having those extra resources from the FBI was really helpful. But there were very few developments in the weeks after Naja's car and personal items were found. At least none that the police were sharing publicly. Now, the police had said during the press conference on March 18th that they had obtained surveillance footage from various locations, but they never revealed what, if anything, they found. Now, I couldn't find any information about the surveillance footage, like, at all. There weren't many articles that even referenced the existence of any surveillance footage. So the police obviously did not want that information released to the press or the public. But the episode of Still a Mystery, for the first time, reveals at least some of what the surveillance footage that the police had found. So the first video that they show on the episode was discovered by police on March 21st. Now, this was six days after Nadja disappeared. And that video shows Nadja's car leaving her apartment complex parking lot. Now, it's on the morning of March 15th. And in the video, you can see Nadja's Nissan Altima driving towards the exit of the apartment complex. Now, one of the things that the tape reveals is that Nadja had left at 3.15 a.m. Now, her job was only about 15 minutes from her home, and her shift didn't start until 5 a.m. And so neither the investigators or Nadja's family can understand why she would have left almost two hours before she was scheduled to be at her job that was only 15 minutes away. I mean, you know, she was excited about her new job, but it's kind of strange for her to want to be there that early. So the footage of the car leaving does raise suspicions. I mean, we see the car, but we don't actually see Nadja. The assumption is that she was driving the car and that, you know, the footage we see is her leaving for work. But that's just what the exit told, you know, the police. We can't actually see Nadja in the vehicle. Now, her sister also reveals that Nadja had left behind items that she would have normally taken to work including a pair of shoes that Nadja had usually worn, you know, at a last, her last job and, you know, she was wearing for her new job as well. But she didn't take those shoes with her. And she also didn't take a coat that she normally wore. But police have said that, you know, repeatedly that they have, you know, spoken to her ex and that, You know, they've interviewed him several times and that his story is consistent with the timeline that they have about when Nadja left her home. So the question is, if it was, in fact, Nadja driving that car, where was she going? What was she, you know, planning? Was she planning to make a stop before she went to work? I mean, is that why she, you know, left extra early? Maybe she was planning on meeting someone or going somewhere. But when police found Nadja's car in the parking lot of that movie theater, 
they were also able to obtain footage of not just car being dropped off in that parking lot. And it was dropped off at 5.05 a.m., which was five minutes after Nadja should have been at work. Now, the footage is really bad, but it's super creepy because you watch the car, you know, drive into the parking lot. But at the point when you're watching the car drive into the parking lot, Nadja is no longer driving the car. So after the car is dropped off, another video surveillance footage captures the image of a man exiting the car. And then another man pulls up and picks that man up. The footage that they show on the episode of Still a Mystery is really grainy and you can't make out very much, but... It still makes me question why the police wouldn't tell the public this information. I mean, what if someone had seen the car being driven or dropped off? I mean, why, you know, why wouldn't you tell the public what you found on those surveillance tapes? I mean, I assume that they spoke to any employees that worked nearby, you know, where the car was parked. But what about someone that may have been driving by that night or someone was in that parking lot that night? It's, you know, it's just strange to me that they would keep this information for so long. But the police said that the quality of the video, you know, made it impossible to you know, get the license plate from the second vehicle. And so, you know, maybe that contributed to them not releasing it, but it it still doesn't really make any sense because the video footage reveals so much, especially about the fact that we see a man drop off her car and then another vehicle picks him up. And so once the surveillance footage, you know, is found by the police, it's obvious that at this point in the investigation that Nadja has more likely than not met with foul play. And whatever happened to her possibly involved multiple people. But the police kept the information about the surveillance footage tight-lipped, and they continued to search for Nadja, but they couldn't find anything. On April 8th, 2019, almost a month after Nadja vanished, two men were out for a day of fishing at a pond in Crown Point, Indiana. And that's a town that's about 140 miles from Avon when they discovered a severed foot floating in the pond. When police arrived to process the scene and collect the evidence, they saw that the foot had a small tattoo on it that said Nadja. Nadja's family was notified of the findings, and DNA would later confirm that, in fact, the foot did belong to Nadja. The news of the discovery absolutely devastated Nadja's family. They had been holding out hope that she was still alive. Even though they knew that the possibilities were slim, they still wanted to believe that one day Nadja was going to come back home. The police searched the pond and surrounding areas to see if they could find any additional remains, but they found nothing. Without Nadja's body, some of her family held out hope that perhaps she was still alive. But 
the coroner confirmed that the foot had been removed after Nadja was already dead. And so the little bit of hope that some of her family was holding on to was gone. Nadja was dead. Someone had murdered her. And her family still had no answers. In the months following the discovery of Nadja's foot, the police didn't get any new leads or any information. And the rest of Nadja's body was never found. It's now been two years since Nadja Farrell was last seen. Her case has gone cold. And with no leads and no body, the police are at a dead stop unless someone comes forward and says something. There are so many unanswered questions. Was that actually Nadja driving the car that night when it was seen leaving her apartment complex? And who was the man that was seen dropping her car off that night? And who was the person that picked him up? I think it's safe to say that whoever dropped Nadja's car off that night had something to do with her murder. But the biggest question of all is why? Why would someone kill Nadja? She was a mother and a foster mom. She wanted to do good in this world. She wanted to help children. So who would hate her enough to not only kill her, but then just dump her body like trash? It's not clear whether Nadja's foot was severed by her killer or it became detached after her body was dumped. But whoever did this was cruel and they were evil. They took away a mother, a daughter, a sister, and a friend. I wish there was more of the story to tell. I wish that Nadja's family had the rest of Nadja so they could give her a proper burial. And I wish that they had some type of closure, the type of closure that they so desperately deserve and so desperately need. But there's nothing else. There's no more information. And that's why the work that Uncovered is doing is so important. You know, the grief of losing a loved one, whether they went missing or whether they were murdered, is only compounded when the family doesn't have any answers and when the case goes cold. Bringing attention to these cases is vital to getting new information because somebody out there knows something. Nadja's family continues to fight for justice and they will not stop until Nadja's killer is brought to justice and Nadja's body is found. And so if anybody knows anything, if you live in the Indianapolis area, you saw something, even if you think it's irrelevant. I know it was two years ago. But if you saw something, it might help put the pieces of this puzzle together. You can contact the FBI, the Avon, Indiana Police Department, or the Indianapolis Police Department. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.